This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Christ in the Old Testament. Our scripture reading today is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 22, verses 1 to 19. And it happened after those things that God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take, pray your son, your holy one, whom you love, Isaac, and go forth to the land of Moriah, and offer him up as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall say to you. And Abraham rose early in the morning, and saddled his donkey, and took his two lads with him, and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the offering, and rose and went to the place that God had said to him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes, and saw the place from afar, and Abraham said to his lads, Sit you here with the donkey, and let me and the lad walk ahead, and let us worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood for the offering, and put it on his Isaac his son, and took in his hand the fire and the cleaver, and the two of them went together. And Isaac said to Abraham his father, Father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Here is the fire and the wood, but where is the sheep for the offering? And Abraham said, God will see to the sheep for the offering, my son. And the two of them went together, and they came to the place that God had said to him. And Abraham built there an altar, and laid out the wood, and bound Isaac his son, and placed him on the altar on the top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand, and took the cleaver to slaughter his son. And the Lord's messenger called out to him from the heavens and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not reach out to your hand against the lad, and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, and you have not held back your son, your only one, from me. And Abraham raised his eyes and saw and looked. A ram was caught in the thicket by, his own, by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Adonai Yareh, as it is said today. On the mount of the Lord there is sight. And the Lord's messenger called out to Abraham once again from the heavens, and he said, By my own self I swear, declares the Lord, that because you have done this thing and have not had back your son, your only one, I will greatly bless you and will greatly multiply your seed. As the stars in the heavens and as the sand on the shore of the sea, and your seed shall take hold of its enemies' gate. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed through your seed, because you have listened to my voice. And Abraham returned to his lads, and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelled in Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, here we are, and we ask that you would speak, for we are listening. And by your Spirit, open your hearts to receive this word. 
this word of your grace that calls us to a response of faith and obedience. And Lord, help us to perceive in these dark and obscure words your grace, your faithfulness, and the gospel of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. The story of the binding of Isaac is one of the most evocative in all ancient literature. And it figures very prominently in the Jewish imagination and the Muslim imagination, and certainly in our own imagination as Christians. But to feel its full weight and its full pathos, we need to go back a little bit from the chapter which Timothy read for us and set Genesis chapter 2 in the larger context of this whole book of Genesis. Last week, as we launched this series on Christ in the Old Testament, we meditated on the first 11 chapters of this book of Genesis, God's creation of the world, the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, the flood, the Tower of Babel, the scattering of the nations. And now in this second half of Genesis, Genesis chapters 12 to 50, we move from this universal vision of the entire cosmos and this whole world and all of humanity And our focus shrinks down to God's loving purpose for the whole universe, for the whole world, being centered on a single man and a single woman, God's election of Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And the story begins very abruptly with God speaking seemingly out of the blue to these two random Babylonian moon worshipers. And God appears to Abraham in Genesis 12 and tells him this, Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And it is a call and a promise that is going to be explored throughout the Old Testament. And God tells Abraham, all peoples of the earth are going to be blessed through you. It's like Abraham, the great ancestor of the people of Israel, is going to be the funnel through which God's love and grace and all his purposes for the whole world are going to be poured through Abraham, through Israel, and through them to the whole world. In the story of Abraham, we encounter the mystery of election, God's sovereign free choice of this person who doesn't seem to stand out from all the others around him. God selects Abraham, but God's election behind it has a great missionary purpose. Although God may become very particular and very focused on this one person of Abraham and his family, God's vision has not shrunk and God has not forgotten the rest of the world. And in fact, God's covenant with Abraham is going to be the lifeboat through which God is going to save people from every language and tongue and nation. And in fact, we at this very moment are being blessed through God's covenant with Abraham. So in Genesis, God suddenly shows up to Abraham and calls him and makes these great promises. And the amazing thing is, that Abraham, without question and without argument, without doubt and without hesitation, gets up and he simply obeys God's call. And with Sarah and the rest of his family, they leave their home and they start on this great trek. They don't even know where God is calling them. It's a destination that God is going to show Abraham. 
And Abraham and Sarah take the first steps of what is going to be a long and arduous, lifelong journey of faith, not just for Abraham, but for all his descendants. We don't have any time today even to summarize these 39 chapters describing the story of Abraham and his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob in these chapters 12 to 50. Stories in which I should add their wives Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Leah are key actors. But in these stories, these bearers of the promise, these people who are strangely called by God to a great future, they're going to learn that responding to God's call will test their faith and test it severely. God's promise is gracious. They have done nothing to deserve it, but it will demand everything from them. In these chapters, God again and again makes these great sweeping promises that he reiterates and swears oaths to and even adds on top of what he's going to do. But in the meantime, there are long periods of waiting, months, And years and decades where God does not speak and God does not seem to be acting. And all that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their families have in their hands is the bare promise of God. They go years without seed. They go generations without land. God does not appear to be blessing them. All they have is naked faith. And the circumstances of their lives seem to be mocking the promises And seem to be mocking the faith of the patriarchs. And yet these men and women, yes, in very flawed and sinful ways at times, these are not perfect people by any means, yet they desperately cling on to what God has promised. And they die in faith, not having yet received what God has promised, but they die with their eyes undimmed, with complete trust that someday to their descendants, God will make good on what he has said. The very first obstacle that Abraham and Sarah face at the outset seems to be an insurmountable one because they have no seed. God renames Abraham and says, you are going to be the father of many. What a title that Abraham has. But Abraham is in his 70s when God calls him from Ur. Abraham and Sarah are basically in the nursing home when their journey begins. And they obey God in faith, trusting somehow God's going to work things out. But after years of waiting and nothing happening, Sarah decides we need to move the plot forward. God seems to be waiting for us to find a solution, to do something, to make something happen. And she suggests to Abraham, why don't you take my slave woman, Hagar, go to bed with her, have a child. Maybe that's the way that God plans for this promise to come about. And the child Ishmael is born to Abraham. Then God says, no, I have blessing for Ishmael, but he is not the next link in the chain. This is not the way it's going to happen. And my plan and my promise is not up to you guys to sort out and to make happen. Your wife, Sarah, is going to conceive. And Genesis tells us that Sarah laughs cynically behind the tent flap because she's an old and shriveled 90-year-old when this happens. And honestly, her 99-year-old husband hardly seems up to the task himself. And yet, miraculously, within a year, these wrinkled, white-haired people are laughing, this time in joy, as they hold baby Isaac in their arms. That happens in Genesis chapter 21, the chapter right before the one that Timothy 
read for us a few moments ago. And you have to understand that for Abraham, Isaac is not just the beloved child of his old age, but Isaac holds the entire meaning of Abraham's life. Everything is centered on Isaac. And all the hopes, not just of Abraham, but of the whole world, are pinned on this single child of the promise. Isaac is immensely important. And now, just when the way forward in Abraham and Sarah's life seems clear and straightforward, now, just when God has finally begun to come through on his promise, God appears to Abraham with a terrible demand. The author of Genesis tells us that God was testing Abraham. He's stretching Abraham's faith to its extreme limit of endurance. So as to demonstrate what Abraham's faith is really capable of bearing. And God is almost merciless. He does nothing to cushion the blow for Abraham at all. Abraham, he says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. And it's almost cruel of God to stick the knife in and then begin to twist it as he repeats and intensifies this expression of this tight bonds between Abraham and his son. In fact, in the story, the author takes every opportunity to reiterate, this is not just Isaac, but Isaac, his son, and Abraham, his father. Again and again, the words father and son are emphasized and underlined in this story so that we cannot evade the pathos of Abraham's trial or forget the depth of the sacrifice that God is demanding from him. Take your beloved son, Isaac, God says to him, and go forth to the land of Moriah and offer him up as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall say to you. This very son that God has finally put in Abraham's hands after 30 long years of waiting and struggling and doubting and praying and wrestling, now that Abraham finally is holding Isaac, God says, now you need to give him back to me. Not just give him back to me. I want you to be the one who takes the knife and slits his throat. I want you to take the weapon and drive it into the fulfillment of all your hopes and the answer to all your prayers. Isaac represents Abraham's future. And now Abraham is told to destroy him, to put him on the altar and offer him as a burnt offering and watch all of God's promises go up in smoke. You know, in obedience to God, when God had first called Abraham 30 years ago, Abraham had left Ur, and as it were, he'd burnt all his bridges behind him. There was no going back. But now, as Sidney Gridanus observes, Abraham has to do something far more difficult than to burn the bridges behind him. God is telling him, you need to burn the bridges in front of you. Not just abandon your past, but obliterate your future and trust in me alone. Abraham has no response to God except for obedience. There's no attempt to negotiate like Abraham had done with the three angels over the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah when in great faith he had bargained with God. Abraham says nothing. He rises early in the morning and heads out. 
Abraham goes early in the morning, he chops the firewood, he saddles the donkeys, and he takes Isaac and these two servant boys, and they head out to the place that God has told him. It's a long journey, three days. And Abraham is given many long hours on the back of that donkey to reflect, to consider, plenty of time to count the cost and draw back from God's terrible summons. But step by step, this plodding little group moves forward towards the mountain. I want us to pause a moment just to admire the narrative artistry of this story. The writer is telling this story with the most economical choice of words. He states, he records only speech and actions. He doesn't describe for us what Abraham is thinking. He doesn't embellish what Abraham might be feeling. There's no adornment here. There's no embroidery. Everything superfluous in this story is shaved away. And with a few deft strokes, he paints for us a series of powerful images that are all the more striking for their silence. And we might wonder, what was going through Abraham's mind during those three long days that somehow went by so quickly? It must have been deeply confusing for this man of faith because God's command seems to directly contradict God's promise. It's like God is schizophrenic or something. It's God against God. Because when Abraham had sent Ishmael away at God's command, God had explicitly told him, it's through Isaac that your seed, your offspring will be reckoned. It can't just be any old son. It is this particular son. Isaac alone is the child of promise according to the explicit command of God. And now seemingly against all of that, God is ordering Abraham to kill his son. And offer him up in the flames of sacrifice. There's a terrible tension here that must have come close to destroying Abraham's faith. And as Abraham, in his confusion, turns the problem this way and that and looks at it from every side, there's no way that he can disentangle the knot that God seems to have gotten himself into. On the third day, Abraham finally lifts up his eyes. And in the distance, he sees the mountain that God has marked out for him. And he makes the servant boys wait with the donkey and he tells them, let me and the lad walk ahead and let us worship and return to you. Let us worship and return to you. Is Abraham being evasive? Is he lying to the servants and telling them that the father and the son will return together? Or is there some kind of confused, desperate hope that God has a way for Isaac to survive this test of Abraham's faith? Abraham puts the wood of the offering on the back of his son. Clearly, by this stage, Isaac is no longer a baby. He must be at least a teenager to carry this burden. Isaac takes the wood, and Abraham takes in his hands the fire and the knife holding in his own hands the two objects most likely to accidentally harm his son. And in Robert Alter's vivid translation of the Hebrew Bible that Timothy read for us, he translates it cleaver. And in Hebrew, it's very clear this is no ordinary knife, but a special knife designed for butchering and cutting up animals. And Abraham and Isaac and the wood and the cleaver and the fire go up the mountain together, father and son walking side by side, 
in one of the most painful and eloquent silences in all of literature. And as they walk in this oppressive silence, Isaac realizes a critical ingredient for the sacrifice is missing. Father, here I am, my son. Here is the fire and the wood, but where is the sheep for the offering? It must have taken Abraham incredible effort to keep his voice calm and under control as he finally tells his son, God will see to the sheep for the offering, my son. Is this another evasion? Is this Abraham avoiding to the last moment, telling Isaac the terrible truth? Or is Abraham saying that somehow God is going to resolve this terrible contradiction between command and promise? That at the end of this blind alley that God is calling Abraham down, there's going to be a door that's going to open. But as Abraham and Isaac climb the mountain and reach the top, the place that God has marked out, no door opens. And almost in slow motion, like a sleepwalker in a nightmare, Abraham piles up the stones for the altar and he lays out the wood. And then he binds Isaac, his son. Was there a struggle? If Isaac is a teenager and Abraham is over 100, There must have been willingness on the part of Isaac. And somehow, in an act of unimaginable trust in his father, Isaac lets himself be bound to be trussed up with the cord and placed on top of the wood, on top of the altar. And then Abraham reaches out his hand and he takes the cleaver to slaughter his son. He's at last reached the moment of complete surrender to the will of God, utterly trusting his son and his future into God's hand. And then at the climax of the story, at the absolutely last possible moment, an angel, a messenger of God speaks rapidly. Abraham, Abraham, here I am, Abraham says. No doubt, incredibly relieved to have been interrupted by this angel. And he's told, don't touch the boy, because now I know that you fear God and have not held back your son, your only son, from me. God is not one of those bloodthirsty pagan gods who demands human sacrifice. He's not that kind of God at all. But he does want Abraham's heart He does want Abraham's faith. He wants Abraham's complete obedience. He wants Abraham's willingness to surrender his dearest hopes, the meaning of his entire life, and place it back in the hands of his covenant Lord, the promise-making, promise-keeping God. And then Abraham looks up and he sees a ram caught by its horns in a thicket nearby. And he goes and he takes that ram And he offers it up on the altar instead of his son. And Abraham's dim, confused hope was right on target. Because God had indeed provided, God indeed had seen to the sheep for the offering, and the sheep dies in the place of the beloved son. And Abraham names the place Adonai Yairah, that is, The Lord will provide. The Lord will see to it. And he receives back his son Isaac, now doubly precious, 
received first of all through a miracle of birth and now received miraculously back from the dead. And God commends Abraham for his obedience. God speaks to Abraham for the 35th and last time in his life and says to him, Abraham, because you've not held back your son, because you did not withhold him, because you did not spare him, I swear to you, I'm going to greatly bless you and your seed and your offspring and make you a blessing to the nations. One man's choice to obey God at incredible cost is the key to God blessing all the nations of the earth. And God's universal plans for the entire world all come down through this narrow channel of one man, Abraham's choice to fear God. Abraham is held out in the Old and the New Testament as the father of all the faithful. And he's the father of all of us who share the same faith as Abraham did, even if we're not physically descended from him, as Paul says in his letter to the Galatians. But I wonder if this is ultimately a story about Abraham's faith and obedience, or if it's about something else. You know, the story figures very prominently in Islam. Their most important holiday of the year, Eid al-Acha, is a four-day celebration of of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son. It was celebrated back in July, I believe, this year. And of course, in Islam, it's not quite clear. Is this Ishmael? Is this Isaac? But it's celebrated. The meaning of that feast for our Muslim friends is that Abraham, both Abraham and his son stand as examples of supreme submission to the will of God. And of course, the very name Islam means submission. A Muslim is one who submits, being a complete slave to the will of God. But you know, Abraham does not name this mountain, Abraham has obeyed, or Abraham has shown faith. He names Mount Moriah, the Lord will provide. Abraham does not see himself or his son as the hero of the story. This is about God's miraculous provision. And you know, as Israel read this story, long after the days of Abraham and Isaac and Moses, as they went through their long, difficult, painful history, we can well imagine that Israel could identify with Isaac on the altar. The knife at their throats their very existence hanging in the balance, the future of all God's promises in terrible doubt. And yet, again and again, God comes through to provide, to validate, to rescue the covenant people, and to make sure that God's promises are going to come to fulfillment despite every obstacle. And the Lord's provision is the key to Christian interpretation of this passage, because Genesis chapter 22 is a marvelous foreshadowing of the gospel. We can't help but read the story and see Isaac pointing forward to Jesus, the beloved son, the only son, the loved one, the child of the promise, on whose shoulders the whole future of Israel and indeed the entire world's salvation depends. And God himself seems to call forth this memory when at Jesus' baptism he says, this is my beloved son. And just like Isaac, Jesus carries the wood of his own offering up the mountain and willingly submits himself to be bound and placed on the altar.
father and son go up the mountain in complete singleness of purpose. In the end, God does not allow Abraham to sacrifice his son. His wrist is pulled back at the last moment, and Isaac does not die. God is not going to allow any human being to do this. And yes, God commends Abraham for in his heart not withholding his only son. God is only going to allow himself to make this step in actuality. You know, there are all these wonderful types and symbols and shadows in the Old Testament that point to Jesus, and we're going to see many more as we go through the series on Christ in the Old Testament, but they're only partial. They're limited. They're fragments and pieces of a mosaic because only Jesus can bring forth the fullness of what God has for us in the gospel. Only Christ can actually be the sacrificial victim for Israel and for the whole world. In Genesis chapter 22, the the sacrificial lamb, the ram, dies in place of the beloved son. So the beloved son can go free. And that's the good news for Abraham and Isaac. But in the story of the gospel, these two images merge and overlap. And the beloved son actually becomes the lamb of God given for the sins of the world. And Jesus dies so the people of God may live. The Lord will provide. The Lord is going to provide the sacrifice. The atonement for Israel is not something the people of God can somehow gather and create themselves and offer to God. If they can find some supreme example, some sinless sacrifice they can give for God, God is going to provide the sheep for the sacrifice in a way that Abraham and Isaac could hardly imagine that we can hardly see from within the horizons of the Old Testament that God is going to give in the person of his son. The lesson of this story is that whatever difficult sacrifices of obedience God may call us to, and as children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, as members of God's people, our faith too will be tested. And we have many years of arduous journey many opportunities for doubt, many of our own wrestlings of faith, many times when God's commands and promises seem to contradict, and we don't know ourselves how God can possibly open a door out of the blind alleys in which he seems to lead us. And we can begin to see ourselves as the heroes of our own journey of faith, These magnificent people who are being ordered by God to make incredible, devastating, debilitating sacrifices for him. But God says, and he insists, you are not the ones to make the ultimate sacrifice. Only I will do that. Abraham is an incredible model of faith for us because he really knew so little about the God who was calling him. And yet with Such tiny grains of revelation, Abraham rises to great faith in the promises of God. He looked forward dimly to the day of Christ and was glad, Jesus himself tells us, but he only perceived it in the land of shadows. Our journey of faith is on the other side of the cross. And unlike Abraham, we can clearly perceive how God has fulfilled all of his promises in the covenant. And as Paul tells us in Romans 8, if God has not spared his only son, if God did not withhold 
his one son, his only son, the son whom he loved, Jesus, how will God not also with him graciously give us all things? Our faith will be challenged. Our faith will be tested. Our faith will be proved. God is going to stretch our faith in ways we cannot imagine now. But we can look to Christ, God's beloved son, the lamb of God given for us, and see in him the assurance of all God's promises. Our God is not just a promise-making God who speaks big and makes all these vows and oaths with no intention of coming through. God has come through for us already in Jesus. And shall we pray and ask God to strengthen our faith that we can rise and become children of Abraham as we trust in Jesus? Heavenly Father, we come to you as the Lord who will provide, the Lord who has provided. And we thank you for the gift of Christ, your son, in the gospel. We thank you that whatever you call us to give up, you have given up far more for us in the person of your son. And Lord, when we are filled with doubt and uncertainty, when our hearts are darkened in confusion, when we cannot perceive your purposes or how you can possibly release us from the hard place that you've called us to, oh Lord, help us to look back at Calvary and see Christ hanging there for us. You have not withheld your son from us, O Lord. As the loving father, you have surrendered everything for your people. And O Lord, may that fill our hearts with faith. May that fill our hearts with grace. May that fill our hearts with a knowledge of your love and your infinite, invincible commitment to your covenant, that you will keep your word no matter how high the cost. Oh Lord, help us to respond in joyful faith. In Christ's mighty name we pray, amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.